Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew. Did you know that you can use code PUREDOGTALK at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders to receive $20 off? <laughs> I'm saving you 20 bucks, guys, off each Embark for Breeder kit you buy. Embark for Breeders dog DNA kits bring you the genetic results you need to create a best-in-show breeding program. Identify your puppy's genetic profiles before they go to their new homes, like I did, and give new owners peace of mind and useful genetic health information. Embark, creator of the highest-rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available and easy-to-download OFA submission reports for breeders. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. And don't forget this part. Use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. And remember to use the code PUREDOGTALK. They're world-class scientists and veterinary geneticists are standing by. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And today we have part two of our episode talking with Denise Fenzi. You are all going to know the Fenzi Dog Sport Academy. And Denise has amazing conversations that she shares with her group on social media. And she popped one up the other day and I said, oh yeah, we're going to talk about this baby. And we are talking about the differences between drive and arousal and how that impacts on our dogs, particularly performance dogs, but I think across the spectrum. And some of the things that we as breeders need to be aware of and more aware of than we are. So welcome, Denise. This is going to be fabulous. So again, I think as we're looking at our breeding decisions, and this is a conversation that I've had with another wire hair pointer breeder, in fact, that the wire hair pointer of the 50s and 60s was too much dog for today's human. They were too tough. They were too hard. They were stand up, confident. And they'd bite you, right? Like, I mean, that was a thing. If you crossed that line, they would bite you. And because of the society we live in today, a lot of people in our breed have worked very hard to tone that down. And unfortunately, what I see happening is that they have taken away the stand-up without taking away the sharp. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they don't have the confidence, but they still have the sharp. And so what I see is a lot of times I see dogs that have fear instead of confidence and I see fear biters. When you're thinking about those old style dogs, were they calm? Oh God. Yeah. Very chill. Okay. So this is interesting because I've noticed in German shepherds in the working dogs, 
the ones that do IGP and the, the sport right. dogs. I feel like there's been a change over the 30 odd years I've been watching. And I feel like the old dogs, now in fairness, we weren't very kind about our training. It was pretty rough. And so when you're beating dogs with sticks and, you know, whatever you're doing. So those dogs, I think had a different, they were calm. Boy, they were hard. I don't mean hard, easy. I mean, hard, soft. They had a shell on them and you could beat on them and they'd be like, I'm going to hold on. And they could take aggression towards them and they would come back at it appropriately. But in some ways, I trusted those dogs more like with children and such because it took more to get there. So we call that a threshold. They were high threshold dogs. They didn't go there easily. They took a lot of crap from the people who shelled it out. But at the end of the day, they had a very clear head. However, it appears that the German Shepherd breeders are adding more and more predatory type behavior because one, you get earlier maturing. So you get dogs at eight weeks that start to look like something and they're zipping and zooming and biting the rag and everybody's like, oh, this is so exciting. But I think it's coming at the expense of stability, that hard clear-headed, stable brain, but they're not twitchy in the same way, you know? So when we think of those fast, twitchy dogs, they're showy, they're flashy, they bark. It takes very little to get them going. Some of these old-style dogs, I actually had one in a Belgian form. It was actually a show dog. And he had really as much courage as any dog I've ever had, whether working or show. The difference is he didn't have that high prey. So he just couldn't think of a reason to sit in the blind and bark for as long as they would make you do it. Nothing was happening. Right. But I would say if somebody was going to break into my house and I was here, he would have been a good dog to have around because he had that clear head. He could see a real threat where some of the stuff I work with now, some of the dogs I see now, they're so busy running in circles, yapping. They're just being hysterical. Right. And again, it's this drive arousal thing. I kind of get the sense the old style dog trainers, they were kind of no-nonsense people. And the lady I got my first Belgian from, she was a seriously scary, no-nonsense old lady. I mean, you did not mess with that lady. And neither did the dogs. She would never have tolerated a dog who was being hysterical and hyper. Her brain was, you shut up, you sit down, you do what I told you, and stop skulking. Don't act scared of me. (laughs) Okay. So, because she was scary. Right. The kind of dog that wasn't afraid of her. And just got the message was a calm, clear headed, old style dog. Yep. Very similar. But they're slow to grow up. They grow slowly. You know, we didn't train dogs in the old days when they were babies. We trained them older. We let them be babies. We did. And then they got six months. Here's a whole nother topic. It got ugly when they turned six months, but until they were six months, they ran them up. And so if you had a slow maturing dog, it didn't matter. But nowadays, you know, your three-month-old puppy isn't like doing all the shaping exercises and you're flipping out because the dog next door is doing algebra and now you're starting to feel bad, you know, because clearly your dog is inferior. And then what do we do? We pressure those babies. And I do think we're sort of pulling out of the gene pool those clearer-headed, calmer, strong working dogs. And when I see them, I have so much admiration for them. They're nice to live with. Yes. They don't scare me. They're not sharp. And uh, an awful lot of the stuff I see, not at the higher levels, of course, but at the lower levels, people just trying to make it work. These softer dogs, I think they're more likely to bite me than the harder dogs because their head isn't clear. Yeah, that was my point about the wire hairs. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest dogs I ever lived with was an Akita. And you want to talk calm, very quiet, never said a word, never said a word. But he said it, he meant it. (laughs) 
He was taken in the world. Yep. He was just as level as you can ask for. But when he said something, it was serious. And I think that that is the kind of mind I think about and what we need to do as we move forward with all of our breeds to think about the breeding decisions that we make, the training decisions that we make, the socializing decisions we make. All of those things go into as a package, making that kind of dog. And if we see something popping up consistently, we've lost one of those wheels on that cart, right? It's gone rolling off down the hill. I do wonder how many amazing dogs are put in pet homes because at eight weeks, they looked dull, like by comparison to their lively litter mates. Yes. And so they just got stuck somewhere and then you meet that dog, you know, and it does happen, right? And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, what a great dog. Yep. See it all the time. Yeah. Because how do we pick? I mean, there's lots you can pick for, but you can't necessarily pick for drive if it's not supposed to be there yet. Because what three-year-old has focus? Three-year-old child? None. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's still not going to be the world master chess player when they're 30. But at three, you can't pick for that. I mean, maybe they're slightly calmer than the next guy, but you know what I mean? It's a challenge. And that's why I just keep going back. I love to talk to these old-time breeders. Zen comes from a woman I've known for 30 years. She's been breeding probably 40 years. You probably know her, Laura Miller. She's up yeah, yeah. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yep. She's been around forever. If, if, yep. In human terms, she's a low arousal, clear-headed human. She hears and she thinks and she's critical with her thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of fun to kind of do a little pedigree discussion, like looking over, well, you know, what do you get from over here? I also think sometimes the bigger dogs, the bigger boys in particular, They're just big, floppy, slow. And you think they might be ugly because in the beginning, they start out so big and floppy. Clunky. Yeah, but they hit three and they're amazing. They just look powerful. All the pieces just came together. But how do you know? Right. I just had a conversation with another breeder talking about selecting. Like, do the breeding that you're doing and then select for what you bred for. So if I'm selecting for drive, for example, and I'm seeing what I think is drive and really it's arousal, maybe I'm three or four generations now down and I've picked three or four generations of arousal instead of drive because that's what I was selecting for. That's you know, it would I'm be wondering. fascinating if a bunch of breeders just take a quick mental ranking of a litter on arousal and then go look at them again in a year. And just see, are the calmer, lower arousal dogs less in drive or the same or more? I mean, what do you have as adults? If people aren't thinking about it consciously, because I certainly was not, I was certainly lumping it all into the drive category. Right. And even though some part of my head kept saying, wait a second, there's more going on here. It wasn't until my friend, actually Sharon Carroll, really started talking to me a lot about this concept of arousal as being something that could be linked to emotions or that lower level of instinctual behavior, that really started getting me thinking a little bit more that we can tease these apart. We can pull these two out and talk about them as separate things. So drive always requires arousal. Arousal does not require drive. That is a good baseline start, like to recognize that and to recognize that arousal can hinder the dog's ability to see the world clearly. 
So your socialization goes to hell as the dog is so busy moving. They're not actually taking it in. Right. And then when they're three, they take it in. And that's a problem because for the first yes. time, they just saw a garbage can on wheels. Ah! It's been there the whole time. They just never slowed down enough to see it. Right. And, you know, in training, we actually perpetuate that because what we do with these high arousal dogs is we work them. So we get them toys and play them. Come on, come on. We focus them really early and they go for it because they're high arousal dogs. They need something to attach it to. And so we actually undermine their socialization because like this puppy Zen, you can't because he doesn't give you a choice. He just ignores you. So if he's not ready to do things, he just sits and you're not going to, I mean, I guess some people would force it. I'm pretty patient. I just sit with him, but I could see how with a different kind of dog, you could put them in over their head. And I remember saying to somebody recently, of all the various puppies I've had, this one is one I trust to make good decisions for himself. So if he says he's ready to move towards something, I trust that he's going to be fine with that. Whereas some dogs, I don't. See, I've had dogs that went towards things, got themselves into situations they never should have been in. I have to not allow it. Like reactive dogs. You do not let reactive dogs approach because they're making a bad decision for themselves. So you're the adult. Yes. With this puppy, if he says, I want to approach, I have learned that he's going to be fine. And if he says he doesn't want to approach, I have learned, just listen to him. Because he's telling me he's not ready and he's not going to hide forever. He just, he's got his own clock, which is a really kind of interesting thing. And over the years, so often you hear people talk about thinking puppies and now I'm like, okay. So besides Kisu, Kisu was a thinker too. And Kisu was another one. I said to the breeder, she came from Finland and I said, I'm sure I didn't use the word dull because I have some sense, but I did kind of say something along the lines of, she doesn't really want to play that much. And he's like, yeah, no, that's very normal for my lines. She'll get there later. She'll be fine. And she was fine. But they do seem to be on a different clock if they don't have that arousal driving them forward. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, so much of my selection, again, if I'm looking at over the course of the last, say, 10 years, well, I've got the last of that litter is 13 and a half years old. She's that I did that big outcross for not really a big outcross, but I did that particular power breeding, 13 and a half years old, still living on my couch. She's very bossy. She was a very good working dog. She definitely had that sensibility. She was never bred from, so it's hard to say. Her sisters, several of them were bred from. And most of what I have and I'm working with right now are down from one of those sisters. And I think the interesting piece to me is bred like you said, one direction that was a lower drive dog, I got really solid dogs. Bred a different direction where the dog was a little more arousal, maybe a little on the edge of anxiety, I got different things. And I'm really seeing it so clearly now when I look at those differences. Yeah. And then, you know, there is the other side. If you're not careful, if you breed too low arousal, you will have nice pets and they will be stable, but you will lose your working dog. Right. And for those of us that participate in any kind of performance event, that's always a knife's edge. And I look at my friends that breed like, oh, I don't know, pugs, Havanese, whatever. I'm like, you are so lucky. All you have to do is make them cute. I mean, come on. <laughs> Sociable. They want to sit on your lap. I agree with you. I've often said if I got back into breeding... You know, it'd be me and the Cavaliers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Something just like, so that when the pet owners call you, they're not flipping out because the melon was attached to their clothing. That's kind of what they do. 
That's what they do. <laughs> yeah, it is such a fine line. And I, of course, have added to it because I don't just do performance. Like they have to be pretty too. <laughs> you know, and they have to be healthy. That's a lot of criteria. You put a lot of things into a thimble here. Well, you would have an enormous advantage. But if it came to pass, that lower arousal tended to inherit with greater stability. And I think that's an absolute possibility. Mm -hmm. You actually have better pets. So you solve a lot of stability issues. Right. And stability is obviously a big deal. In the pet world, it's probably the biggest. It's the biggest. Yeah. So you don't want the dog making bad decisions off the top of its head. Like, you know, that whole, they ask questions later. No, I need my dog to ask questions first and then make a decision, right? So if it is true that lower arousal inherits with higher stability as a rough guide mm -hmm. and a clearer head, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. But then where do you keep the drive piece in? That's the only question. If drive is not arousal, then it's a completely separate thing. Right. Now, how do you know? And I don't think they're completely separate, especially your breed, because a hunting dog is out literally moving. Yes. So my breed does not have that requirement. Right. Your breed, you have to have enough arousal that your dog can think of a reason to run for 10 miles. And that's not a minor ask. Yeah. So I would think that in like a breed like yours, you're always going to have to keep that arousal meter a little higher. But it's relative, right? All these things are right. relative. So even the word drive. Yeah. And what you need for a dual purpose wire hair pointer versus what you need for a dual purpose clumber spaniel. Okay. I do not want a dual purpose clumber spaniel to have arousal. That's a bad thing. <laughs> Right. Another breed. Trust me, my parents raised clumbers. My father hunted over clumbers for years. They were great working dogs. And they were literally like, is it alive? Yes. Wave a bird under its nose. Yes, it's alive. Good. Okay. It's supposed to be low arousal. Yes. But just look at how they're built. Yeah. They look exactly. low arousal. <laughs> they are low arousal. <laughs> totally. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. But I think it's so important when we talk about these things from the perspective of purebred dogs and doing events and doing sports and doing show, if that's where part of our consideration, all of those things, it all is breed specific. Absolutely. Starting at that instinct piece that you were talking about, the instinct has to be there. And then you layer on all the rest of it. Yes. And then you've got your focus and all kinds of other things that are going to come into play. Even the definition of how do you define drive? And my definition is stays in the game under adversity. So it doesn't matter what your game is. And it doesn't even matter what the adversity is. Could be weather, could be bad training. There are dogs who are out there in crappy weather under crappy training. And I don't even know how they do it, but they figure out what the trainer wants and they just plow on forward. To me, that's drive, right? With a good right. dose of hardness. 
And while I don't think dogs should have to be that, I'd like to see it. When I was breeding, I actually liked to breed to dogs that had poor conditions because if I knew you'd never left your kennel and socialized and I knew your trainer was horrific and you still come out looking like that. I would never raise my dogs that way, but from a genetics point of view, I'm all about that kind of a right dog. So to me, drive is you stand the game under adversity. You pick the game. And I think that's really interesting. I was talking to you off air. We were talking about a dog that I'm developing right now that isn't showing the kind of drive, what you're talking about, the stay in it under adversity, has the desire, has the basic instinct, has the willingness, has the biddability, has all of the pieces, but lacks that particular one. See, I would call that an element of how much drive. I would say the more drive, the more willing. So it could just be a good solid dog who has drive, but not enough drive for whatever your goals are. Or whatever this individual or, right, exactly. Definitely has drive, just isn't going to do X. Right. Has enough drive to do A, but maybe not Z. Exactly. And I think that is also a component just across the line in every one of the breeds. I have washed out wire hair pointers, beautiful dogs, fully health tested dogs that you couldn't get them. I call it work ethic. Like they have zero work ethic, zero, not a zilch, not Not even a, no, I'll just lie here and wave my feet near. Yep. Okay. If you can't have work ethic for anything, then you need to not be in my breeding program. Yep. And so those are the kind of decisions that we look at and then everything falls on that spectrum. Yep. I think when we talk about high and low, these are modifiers. It's like saying, well, that's small. Small compared to what? A small elephant or a small chihuahua. So drive has to be qualified against what are we talking about? So when the average pet person comes to me and says they have a high drive dog, I ask questions, you know, an agility person, high drive dog, a protection person, high drive dog. These are all in different puddles. So as you haven't defined your puddle, I don't know what your high drive is. So I actually pay little attention. Like when somebody says, oh, my dog is low drive or high drive. I used to teach a lot of seminars and I used to ask people to fill out forms before I would arrive. You know, what do you want to work on? And I would sit in the airport reading these stories of these horrible dogs. Like one after the other, he has no drive. He doesn't care about food. He attacks the neighbor and go on and on and on. And by the time I got there, I'm a neurotic mess. I'm like, I can't help any of these people. And then I would be working the seminar and it's all these normal dogs. And then you would get to one and you'd be like, wait a second. Is that the one that attacks the neighbor? Doesn't take food? It's a perfectly normal dog. That's kind of when I started to realize, I stopped asking for that information up front because I started to see that what I saw as a problem dog and what somebody else saw as a problem dog was often so far different that the information became useless to me. Yes. I just saw a dog who was unsure or, you know, something. And it is a complexity because how do we tease apart maybe not the best quality of training from the dog from, are you asking it to do something it wants to do? I mean, not all dogs want to do all things. Well, and always roll in. Is it have an injury that you don't know about? Oh, yes. You know, yes, yes. all of the extra pieces. But I think the distinction that we're talking about here that is, just fascinating to me and something that I too, I'm going to continue chewing on as I think about this between arousal and drive and then throwing in all the rest of it, the anxiety. There's so much. The anxiety arousal piece, I would love to explore more because I think it's stronger than people realize. See, I have this expression. I say, does your reactive dog look like arousal looking for a trigger 
or does your dog become reactive when it sees a trigger? And so many people have said, my God, that's exactly what my dog is. Arousal looking for a trigger. He goes out finding the problem. It's not like he sees a dog and then he lights up. He goes out into the world looking. It's a car. Oh, my God. It's a leap. And, you know, in a three-month-old puppy, that's one thing because they're just kind of silly or whatever. But in a young adult dog, it's miserable and it's exhausting. And it is, in my opinion, anxiety looking for somewhere to attach and it finds something. There's a reason you're feeling that way. So let's find something, whether it's another dog or a person. It's very hard to live with a dog that you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything without managing every single second. And I think that we run into it. I certainly have seen it. And for some of us, I have a reactive dog here that shouldn't have been based on how he was bred and raised, but there he is. And I don't know that I'll ever go anywhere else because I can manage it. Yeah. You know, what's awesome is that you just said it because as a breeder, I've had my better and not as good litters. I am not ashamed of any of the dogs. Some of them were better than others. And I had one litter in particular. I just had a lot of problems. There was health problems. There were temperament problems. It was like, I don't know why this litter got shit on because it just felt like everything hit this one litter, (laughs) but I don't hide it. I think it's so important that breeders, as much as we know, have the conversation and really support each other in the problem litters. Like just say, you know what? It happens. It happens to all of us because then we can put it out there. We can talk about it. You can't throw out all the dogs. If you throw out all the dogs, you got nothing to bring. So let's talk about it. You know, the fact that your dog's great aunt twice removed had a seizure is not a reason to pull your dog from the breeding program because then there's nothing left except for people lying. And then people lie because they don't want to throw out their entire, and they shouldn't throw out their entire breeding program because then there's just nothing except lies. Or my very favorite, and I am going to say this because this one does just grind. When you're honest and you tell people what you've experienced and then they go around and tell everybody else that your entire breeding program is a cesspool of whatever the heck. Yep. Oh. <laughs> if you can come up with the answer to that problem, just kind of clue me in. The only thing I would say, if you can figure out how to make people behave like adults, The one thing I would say is when I was breeding and I was as honest as I could be, and I will say, looking back, I made some pretty bad mistakes. I can look back and see how I held owners responsible for things that were not their fault. Like I can see it now. This is a great example, arousal and drive. I can absolutely see how I would have given somebody a dog and thought they just couldn't handle the drive. And now I can look at it because I'm in a different place. But as much as possible, I was honest. And what that did do was give me a much higher quality of puppy buyer. Because after you've told a person all the things you know in your lines and they're still there, like to me, that's a person who gets that we're just doing our best. And I think that, you know, dog people are dog people and it is what it is. But I do believe that, as you say, knowing that things happen, knowing when things happen. And this is another one that I don't know your experience, but mine is really concrete on this topic. Certain lines, certain families that Nick, that work together and certain ones that are absolutely at cross purposes. Like that litter you told me, I guarantee you, if you go and look, there's other instances when those two lines came together and didn't work. You know, that has to be true because you can have two fantastic parents and a lot of problems in the offspring. So Mm -hmm. the parents didn't have it. I mean, and I have spent, I can't even tell you how many hours trying to figure out where did it come from? I can tell you. I mean, I don't know your dog, your pedigree, your breed. I am telling you, there are lines that do not mix well. 
I know it in my breed. And it started with the offhand comment that somebody said to me a million years ago about, oh, we bred to such and such dog and we got all these dysplastic hips. And I'm like, that dog has never produced a dysplastic hip ever bred to anything else. And then it's just continued and continued and continued and continued. And it is a compilation now of my 25 plus years involved in a breed and watching when those two things are crossed and pardon me, everyone out there in listener land, it's a shit show. Yeah. And it is every single time. Like it isn't just once. It isn't just one individual dog. It is this do not Interesting. make happy yeah. things. And so that is a personal observation based on very careful analysis over the course of an extended period of time. Yeah, it's totally believable because I have certainly seen litters where I couldn't figure out what happened. And the same bitch or same sire has produced well. Beautifully. Yep. In other directions. Yep. At any rate, you know what? We have used up all of your very valuable time, plus some. And I am incredibly grateful because I think you are a fascinating and genius person to talk to about a lot of this stuff. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's a topic I care a lot about. So if we can hear more people talking about it, that makes yeah, me very happy. Very happy. And we'll get to talk to you about something else cool along the way too. Excellent. That sounds great. Thank you for having me, Laura. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. One of my favorite events over the last year or so has been the virtual After Dark for patrons of the podcast. Anybody can join this amazing community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking the Become a Patron link on the homepage. While you're there zooming around on the site, you can check out our shopping tab, too. There's even a Pure Dog Talk swag link. Oh, no. Share the love with all our cool gear. Check it all out at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 